During the Lenten season on the Wednesday nights, I had a, a really good fortune to be able to preach a number of those services. And one of the things I did as I was preaching through various psalms was preach through Psalm 51. I spent two Wednesday nights preaching through the first nine verses one Wednesday and then the following Wednesday preaching through verses 10 through 19. And a funny thing happened as I preached through the second half of that psalm. As I prepared and got everything ready, I was feeling good about it and had all my notes put together and I got up and began to preach and went through everything and when I got done, no sooner had I walked down from the pulpit after the service and it occurred to me, I completely skipped verses 13 through 15. I had gone over those first few verses leading up to that and I had talked about the verses after that, but I had a whole section of things that actually I thought were quite important to the psalm as a whole that for some reason I had just completely forgotten to talk about. I'm not sure why that happened. Maybe it was just absent-mindedness on my part, but being a Calvinist, we of course look for deeper reasons than that. We know that the sovereign hand of God had to be involved, so I started to think, well, maybe I was just going too long and God said, I'm going to have mercy on these people. Let's just skip to the end. Or maybe, I hope this wasn't the case, but maybe what I was going to say was wrong or even heretical and, and he didn't want that to be brought forth. But I don't think that's what it was. I certainly hope that wasn't what it was. Because another option is maybe that he didn't want it said then because he wanted it said some other time. I hope this is the case because that's what's going to happen. We're returning to Psalm 51 today and looking at verses 13 through 15. It's important for me here, since we are looking at this, and many of you weren't here on those Wednesday nights, to give you just a little bit of context of what Psalm 51 is about. Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote after he had been confronted in his sin. He had, uh, to keep the story real short, stolen another man's wife and had that man killed. He was confronted in his sin and in realizing the horrific nature of his sin, he repented of it, confessing it to God. And this psalm is basically his words of repentance. But he has given it to us, not just as a personal psalm, because the psalms were the hymn book of the people of God. So it is something that we are to enter into and sing along with ourselves. We are to read these and apply them to ourselves and see them as being words that are for us and not just for David. We see that in the first 12 verses that led up to today's passage, there are 20 different active verbs used. And interestingly, the only two that David applies to himself are ones that deal with him acknowledging his own sin. The other 18, 90% of the action that takes place in that passage is attributed to God. David calls out to God. He says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me. Blot out my transgressions. In verse 2, Wash me thoroughly and cleanse me from my sins. In verse 4, You speak. You judge. In verse 6, You desire. You will make known. In verse 7, Purge me and wash me. In verse 8, Make me hear. In verse 9, Hide your face. Blot out my iniquities. Verse 10, Create, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 11, Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your spirit away from me. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me. Only after this long litany 
of verbs that David has attributed to God, things that he has looked to God to perform. Only then does David start to really act, start to do something. We see this in verse 13 through 15. Note that even those things that David is doing in these passages, though, he is doing as a response to what God has already done. This now is Psalm 51, verses 13 through 15, the word of God. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we do pray right now that you would open our hearts to your word, that you would touch us in a way that enables us to understand your truth. Speak to us by your spirit as you would would will it, and draw us closer to you that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Note David's three responses in this passage that I've just read. He, He says in response to God's gracious action, I will teach, my tongue shall sing, and my mouth will show forth your praise. Teaching, singing, praising. I want to take a look at each of these three Responses. First of all, let's take a look at the three of them corporately, together. Teaching, singing, praising. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that sound like anything that we might do? Does it sound like what we're doing right now? I think that that's what David's talking about here. He's talking about the corporate worship of God's people, especially when you consider two things. One is the fact that right after this, He speaks of a ceremony of sacrifices, sacrifices that were offered in the context of the public worship of God's people. And you consider that this is indeed a psalm, a psalm which again was part of the hymn book of the covenant people of God. It is meant to be sung within corporate worship. So what we have here is a picture, a picture of how we should respond in corporate worship to the grace of God which has been lavished upon us. Now you might say, Pete, wait a second. Doesn't he say here in this first part, he's talking about transgressors. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And and that wouldn't be something that happens in the corporate worship. That would be something like when we leave church and go out. And I would say, no, I don't think so. First of all, because there are those in our midst who are not believers in Christ, who are not members of his body, who are not members of the true church. So there are those who need to hear, even here this morning, the saving words of Jesus Christ. They need to be brought to a knowledge of his salvation. Now, that is true, but that is not what he's talking about exactly when he says transgressors. You see, when the Psalms talk about transgressors or sinners, what they are generally speaking about is is members of the covenant people who are not fully embracing the provisions of God's covenant at that time. And so when it says that he will teach 
transgressors. He's not saying those people who aren't members of the church, those people who aren't part of the body of Christ. He is saying those people who are members of the body of Christ, those who are in our midst, but who have started to wander away, those who are not walking faithfully with God. He is saying he will teach them and call them back to faithfulness in God. You see, he can do that. He can teach them that because that is exactly where he was. He was a member of God's covenant people. He was the head of God's covenant people. And yet, as their covenant representative, he had failed to walk faithfully with God. And so, he says he will teach them to turn back to God. We see in our translation that we go from in our pew Bibles, he says, sinners shall be converted to you. I like uh, other translations a little bit better. I've seen that sinners will return to you. And I think that more captures the essence of what's going on here. It's not a matter of converting somebody from non-Christian to Christian, but rather a case of people returning to their God. Now let's take a look at these individually. First of all, teaching. He says, then I will teach. Then is an important word here. He doesn't say abstracted from anything else. I'm going to go out and teach people. He says then. The then points back to that long list of things we said before. That, that pouring out of God's grace that we have seen earlier in, the, in Psalm 51. And he says only in light of that, only in light of what God has done, can I now begin to talk about what I must do. You see, to say do this and do that, abstracted from what God has done, is foolish. It lacks power. And it lacks biblical truth. You might have seen sometimes the bracelets, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? A good question. A good diagnostic to ask, I guess. What would Jesus do in any given situation? But a more important question is WDJD. What did Jesus do? Because if we can get our mind around what Jesus has done for us, the grace that he has shown us, the life that he has given up for us, if we can get our minds and our hearts around this truth by the grace of God, then the things that we do will flow naturally out of that. It won't be a set of to-dos. The law doesn't become something then that, that we have to do in order to placate a God who's otherwise going to be angry at us. Rather, it becomes our joy. It becomes what we want to do. It becomes how we want to live our lives because we want to be in alignment with God's desires. As a pastor, I need to remember that this is the proper mode of things. I need to be humbled, not teaching from a position of intellectual or spiritual superiority, not teaching because I have gone to seminary and gotten a Master of Divinity degree. That is not the grounding of my teaching and preaching. Rather, the grounding of my teaching and preaching must be none other than the grace of God that he has shown me. The same is true for all of you. Now you say, oh, wait, I'm not going to be preaching, but, but you have opportunities to teach every day. Every interaction you have with somebody teaches them a little bit something about what God is doing in your lives. And 
You can't teach others something unless you've experienced it yourself. So you can't teach them about the grace of God unless you've experienced the grace of God. And I would argue that if you have experienced the grace of God, you can't help but teach others about it. Having looked at teaching, let's turn our attention now to the second part. David says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, then my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Now again, I, I, would, I would quibble with this translation just a little bit. Instead of the guilt of bloodshed, uh, just to make it a little bit clearer, I, I prefer the translation used in other places of blood guilt. The idea there, I think, is not just the guilt of David's shedding of Uriah's blood, which certainly is part of what's being talked about here, but I think it goes deeper than that. You see, I think it includes his guilt and his sin with Bathsheba. Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. You see, when he talks about blood guilt here, he's not talking about blood that he has spilled. He is talking about his own blood, which is owed on account of the sin that he has committed. He is blood guilty. His life ought to be taken. That is what he justly and rightly deserves for his sin. And he realizes it. And he says here, deliver me from this blood guilt and I will sing aloud of your righteousness. It's kind of an odd thing to be singing about there if you really stop and think about it. I mean, it pours off of our lips when we read it, but stop and think for a second. It almost doesn't seem to fit. I mean, righteousness is a legal term. It means justice. It means doing what is in conformity with the law. It means not deviating from it at all. His righteousness, one would think, would demand that David's life be taken, not that it be spared. It doesn't seem to fit. It seems it would make more sense if David were to say, deliver me from blood guilt and I will sing aloud of your mercy or of your forgiveness or of your grace or of your forbearance or of your patience or of your steadfast love or of your faithfulness even in the face of my faithlessness. But David says none of these. He says, I will sing aloud of your righteousness. How can this be? How can it be that David, in being delivered from blood guilt, is able to see God's righteousness. Well, it doesn't seem that it can be so until we see exactly how it is that God does deliver us from our guilt. Paul speaks about it in Romans 3, verses 21 and following. He says, But now the righteousness of God, the same righteousness, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a sacrifice 
that appeases God's wrath by his blood to be received by faith. And why did he do this? Paul says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Sins such as those of David. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. It says that God put his son forward as this wrath-satisfying sacrifice that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. You see, he is both the just and the justifier. He is just in that he punished our sins. He did not let them go unpunished. He punished them, exacting the payment that was due for them in Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made us righteous in Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, if that's not reason to sing, I don't know what is. And so perhaps that's why David goes right from there into singing, into talking about the righteousness of God, into singing. He says that singing is another thing that he will do. Now, singing has many functions, and it fits here, first of all, to talk about this because we just talked about teaching. That teaching is actually one of the main functions of singing. Paul talks in Colossians 3, 16 and says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are for teaching and admonishing one another, not just for other reasons that we'll get to in a minute. You see, that's why it might be a good idea for us to show up for worship early on a Sunday morning, look at our bulletin, see what hymns we're singing, and open up the hymnal and read through those hymns. See what they have to say. Familiarize ourselves with them before we sing them in worship. And then let their truth soak into our heart as we sing them. Think about what you're singing as you sing them. Don't let them just be words that have no meaning. And some folks don't sing. Even if you're not going to sing, just at least open your hymnal and read along so you understand the things that are being sung, the truths that are being taught. I would encourage you, though, to sing. I encourage you because I love the way it sounds in a sanctuary when everybody is singing and the voices build to a crescendo. But even more than that, I encourage you to sing because God demands it. He demands that we sing praises to him. Another use for singing is the shaping of our affections. The Psalms are, are put into our mouths for singing them in the corporate worship because they express the kind of sentiments that God wants to hear his people expressing as they worship him. It's not just that God is pretentious, like the, the girl who might say, oh, aren't I pretty? Aren't I pretty? And he's fishing for a compliment. That's not what the case is. 
What it is with God is, is that he knows that when we sing these words, they not only express what we feel, but they shape what we feel. He wants us to realize his glory because he knows that our fullest joy is found in realizing his glory. That that is what we are created for and that is where we will find fulfillment. We will have our feelings shaped by his word through the singing of his songs. And then finally, in addition to teaching others, in addition to shaping our hearts, of course, there's the purpose of simply praising God. Again, we're not just flattering God to get on his good side. It's not the case of where we're just bargaining with him. God, I'll I'll give you a little bit of praise and then you give me something back. That's not the case at all. That's, That's bargaining. That's bribery. That's not praise. It's not like when, when I was a kid, I had a, a neighbor who lived down the street from me, and, and he would regularly say things like, if you'll give me that candy bar, I'll be your best friend. If you'll let me go first, I'll be your best friend. That's not what God's doing. God's not saying, if you'll sing praises to me, I'll be your best friend. No. He has shown us, shown us already that he is far more than our best friend. He is far more than a friend could ever be. And he has already proved that to us. We ought to praise him as a response to that. It's not a, give me this and I'll do that. It's a, because I've already done this. Give me the praise that flows naturally from it. That flows right into David's third response here. Open my lips, then my mouth shall show forth your praise. You notice David doesn't say, give me something, and my mouth will show forth your praise. He says, open my lips. He realizes that he is not able to praise God apart from the touch of God. He realizes that God must open our lips before we can praise him. He must touch our hearts before we can love him. We have neither the ability, nor the desire, nor the right to praise God apart from his working in our lives. David's praise is not an effort to get something out of God. It's a response to what he has already gotten. And in it he sets a pattern for us of how we ought to praise God as well. One final note. Consider the brokenness and humility that was necessary for David to write this psalm. Stop and think about it for a moment. This was his lowest point. He had committed his most horrific sin. And what did he do? upon being convicted of that by the Holy Spirit, he sat down and wrote a psalm that would be sung in the corporate worship of God's people, not just that week and not just that year, but for the rest of eternity. Think about your lowest point. Think about the worst thing you have ever done. Think about it. 
Take a second. What is it? What is your lowest point? What is your worst moment? What is the most horrific thing you've done? Now, how many of us would want to immortalize that moment in a song, sung in the midst of God's people week after week, year after year? I know I wouldn't. I'm assuming you wouldn't. You know what? I don't think David would either. And yet he did. What was it that made him do this? What was it that, that even enabled him to do this? I can test that it must have been that he had come to the reality that his worst moment occasions God's greatest moment. He had come to the realization that his greatest sin occasions God's greatest grace shown to him. He realized that when we are weak, God is strong. And he realized that when we are sinful, God's grace comes to the fore. You see, we can only discern God's grace to the degree that we understand our own sin. If we're only a little sinful, we only need a little bit of help. But if we are radically sinful, dead in our sins and trespasses, then we need far more than a little help. We need a Savior who brings us new life. That life-giving Savior is Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings new life. He is the one who brings forgiveness. And he is the one who made it possible that David could write this psalm. You see, David understands this, and he wants us to as well. See, these verses that we've looked at this morning are, are in a sense, the keystone to the whole psalm. Because these three verses show that this psalm is a song of God's righteousness that David and the people of God with him are singing. This song contains words of praise proceeding from lips that God has opened with his gracious touch. This psalm is a song that teaches transgressors their ways that they might return to him. May we all apply this to our lives today. Let David teach us the gracious ways of God, that we might more constantly turn to him, singing the praises of his righteousness and grace, and rejoicing over the pure heart that he has provided us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. Make it more real to us, that it might transform us that it might make us who you would have us be, that it might lead us to do those things that we cannot even conceive ourselves doing, but that we do for your glory and not our own.